spring at home, but unmindful of clock or calendar, the Vietnam struggle goes on. This is Veterans Remember Vietnam, a Veterans Day podcast with stories from the servicemen and women of the long and controversial Vietnam War. As veterans come to the nation's capital to see the Vietnam Memorial, many for the very first time, the veterans share their stories with graduate journalism students at American University in Washington, D.C. Hello, my name is James Johnson. And I'm Megan Perrier. On this Veterans Day 2015, you will hear from Vietnam veterans who come to Washington on a trip funded by the Honor Flight Network in Nevada. The national and local nonprofit brings in as many U.S. military veterans as possible to see the memorials of the wars they fought or served in. This month, some 51 Vietnam-era veterans flew into Washington from Reno, Nevada. Their travel, hotel, food, all paid for by a fellow vet. Honor Flight Nevada Chairman John Yespa organized the trip. There's a lot of healing that seems to occur. Um, we've had veterans come to the wall and leave items from Vietnam, and they just said, you know what, I'm ready to turn another chapter. They get a pep in their step, and they'll go home, and they'll talk about their service, where before maybe they haven't. They're embarrassed, or they just feel somebody's going to judge them. But being in a group of 50 or 60 veterans, there's some camaraderie that they feel safe, that they can say or do anything, that each, all the brothers and sisters will take care of them. The Vietnam Memorial stands just north of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. The black granite wall holds the names of more than 58,000 servicemen and women who gave their lives or remain missing from military service in Vietnam, one of the longest and most divisive wars in American history. Veterans hoped the memorial could help heal the nation and separate the issue of military service from that of U.S. foreign policy in Vietnam. But... For too many veterans, including Sergeant Ken Pouliot, the return home was a cold rather than a warm embrace. You know, Vietnam was a war that nobody really appreciated. Uh, they didn't think we should be there. And a lot of people took it out on the soldiers that were drafted and or went in on their own. Uh, I think the one thing that everybody needs to remember is we d went over there, we did the job we had to do. and. We're here today. We have the freedom we have today because of it. And being part of what we're doing here on the honor flight today, uh, this week, is part of our payback for being there now. When we got off of the flight in uh, Maryland yesterday, and there were all these people clapping and thanking us, and I'm getting a little emotional now because it was one of those things. Uh, it was almost, it was basically almost 50 years late, but it was there. American women also served. Some 11,000 military women were stationed in Vietnam serving as nurses, doctors, intelligence officers, or clerks. Others, like Phyllis Adams, worked stateside in a number of roles. She painfully recalls the day she was verbally accosted at her father's funeral while wearing her military dress uniform. My foster father died when I was in the service. My mom asked me, she said, Phyllis, would you do me a favor? She said, would you wear your uniform for Papa's funeral? So I was in full dress military blues for my foster father's funeral. We went to the cemetery in Lakewood for his burial service. This lady comes up to me, gets in my face. What's that get up you got on? And I looked at her and I said, ma'am, I am in the United States Navy, 
this is my full dress military uniform, and that's my father that's being married. She was anti-Vietnam, the whole works. How dare you being a woman, being in the military, et cetera, et cetera. And then I heard baby killer. It really was my most painful because she made me feel like I was only four inches tall and like I didn't have value. And because she, she was degrading everything I stood for. My country, my home, my family, my service. That animosity impacted even the families of Vietnam vets, like pilot Chuck Swanson and his wife Carol. Everything on the news was negative about Vietnam veterans, so I don't know if you were ever spat on, but we heard of people who were. Yeah, rocks thrown at me, and little riots. I was in uniform, didn't like it, so they threw rocks at me. I just backed away and left. Finally, for Phyllis Adams, this honor flight gives back some dignity for her Vietnam service. As she walks over to the wall for the first time, she remembers the sacrifices made by so many. These memorials have been something. This is the first time I've ever been in Washington, D.C. It's been a pretty emotional experience, actually. It's like, whoa. So many men gave their lives. There's so many more that are dying because of all the stuff they were exposed to back there. Agent Orange and all that other. The sacrifices that these people made and why we have freedom. And I praise the Lord for our freedom. But looking at this makes me want to cry. For Dennis Carrier, the wound that won't heal is the one he sees on the wall. My best friend is there, and he's there now on the wall. That's why I'm here. Really tight. His name was Danny Ewing, and he was from Tennessee, and I was from California. He never came home. I didn't have very many friends. I'm not, I don't do that well right now, even. A lot of PTSD and things like that, and just trying to heal. And the wall does that to many vets. It brings back their buried emotions. Veteran Pat Ferguson also remembers lost friends. He enlisted and at age 23 was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. I'm going to go down and see their, their names on the wall now. And uh, uh, the first one was my platoon leader. I was his assistant platoon leader and he was doing an aircraft test flight at our facility and he had an engine failure and, and he and the mechanic he was with, they both died in that. So I took over the platoon. And then uh, about a month later, we were on a night operation and one of our aircraft uh, pulling out of a, a, a landing zone had a meter collision with an aircraft from another unit and killed everybody on board. I, I saw the, you know, the flash in the sky those are the things that, that kind of haunt me all the time. Ike Berry was not sure he was ready to see the wall with the names of those he considers to be his brothers and sisters. And during those two years in Vietnam, I was closer to these guys than I was to my family. And that never, ever changes, ever. These are my brothers and sisters up here. 
Imagine you had a family tree that big and lost that many. What would you feel? Devastation, sorrow. I mean, you didn't do enough. You didn't bring more home. Why'd you come home? I mean, there's just, it's unexplainable the way it works. You know? And only people, only warriors standing next to warriors know that bond. Army Captain Daryl Capiro was an ROTC graduate and served in the 9th Infantry Division. He recalls his last day in country. It was a beautiful sunset when we took off that day. Uh, and a uh, half hour later, Benoit Air Force Base was uh, rocketed by the VC. So we were glad to get out when we did. Other military vets supported those in combat. Army Lieutenant Charlie Whiten worked artillery in Germany and now feels a new bond with fellow vets. I feel out of place with these people that have made such a sacrifice. It's very touching. It touched me deeply to be here. But I'm learning to uh, appreciate them in a way that I never had before. Serving in Guam in aerial reconnaissance, Ralph Camp loaded film onto spy planes for mapping missions over Vietnam. U.S. military advisors had worked in-country long before there were American boots on the ground. When I joined the Navy, we, <coughs> we weren't admitting there was a shooting go war going on. Korea was over. V Vietnam had not officially started yet, so I was called a peacetime sailor. It wasn't peaceful, but uh, I was called a peacetime sailor. But we didn't think about it. I mean, it just that's what you did. You joined the military and served your country, and then you got on with life. Dennis Johnson had wanted to be on the battlefield, but instead was assigned to make prototype camera pods for U.S. Army spy planes tracking communist forces. It's also his first visit to the memorial. And that's where I'm going, to the wall. And I know I'll just be in tearing. That's why I brought my sunglasses. So I'll see me crying, you know. Very sensitive now. Yeah, it's an incredible feeling, you know. Plus with all of these guys, and I, I never knew any of them until I got on the plane to come here, you know. And now they're all just like brothers. In support of his fellow vets, Marine Corps veteran Cecil Averett is happy to see them finally getting the thanks they deserve. And all these memorials and the reception that we've got here. It's great. <coughs> so, lost a lot of friends. But to, uh, to know that we're still able to do this, uh, it's almost worth it. You know, rather than getting spit on, they're getting applauded, so that's good. Army vet Tom Riddle echoes that thought. It feels like finally we're getting the welcome home we never got, finally. For veterans born into military families, service was expected. Sergeant Harold Heater was an Air Force brat but joined the Marines. He was in basic training when his twin brother Paul was killed in action in Vietnam. Every Memorial Day I get out a uh, small suitcase that we have with a lot of memorabilia that has Paul's medals and his certificates and letters and his flag and so forth. We spread them out in the uh, home so anybody that comes in during Memorial Day weekend can uh, look at them. One of the lesser known and darker incidents of the Vietnam War involved Project 100,000, 
also called McNamara's 100,000. It was a recruitment plan by Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara to add more troops by lowering physical or mental standards in the military. While supporters called it a way to help inner-city youth and the poor, for many, Vietnam became a one-way ticket. Medic Frank Ford remembers the disparity of casualty rates among blacks. And that was my disappointment because they took the lowest class out of the ghettos and promised a lot. They called them Magnamares 100,000 and told them a bunch of lies, build them up, sent them over there, put them in the bush, and a lot of them didn't survive. That was 50,000 casualties. The blacks suffered disproportionately more than any other race. I know it for a fact, because I bagged a lot of them as a medic. Still, Boyd says he spent 26 good years in the military. He worked as a medic and platoon leader in 1969-70. I was raised on a farm, and I got tired of picking cotton. And I had two mules named Tom and Jerry. And so I graduated from high school, 54. I kissed my mules goodbye and I left, and then I joined the Army. Davy Stearns enlisted with two friends when he was just 17, and then joined his brother aboard a Navy ship in 1965, an experience, he says, that made him grow up fast. While in the Sea of Japan, he remembers seeing snowballs as big as his hands, and now he can even laugh about one incident. So a lot of guys were, they weren't so much frightened as they were cold. So we had a chief medical officer who was a commander, and he kind of broke into the officer's liquor cabinet and provided, you know, everybody with something to keep them warm. And of course, being sailors, some of these guys that didn't drink, they were selling their samples of liquor to other sailors for unbelievable price. <laughs> and whether to keep warm, relieve stress, or for fun, drinking proved to be a popular pastime for many GIs. Scott Hudson repaired planes in Cambodia and remembers his days off. Me and some of our buddies, we'd go out and we'd go to buy our booze and we'd get happy that way. You know, we, you only got one day off a week. And you work 12-hour shifts, so we really didn't have time to have a lot of fun. But when we did have our fun, we'd just go get drunk. <laughs> just temporary relief from the most divisive conflict in U.S. history since the Civil War. These are just some of the stories of Vietnam-era veterans. We thank them for sharing personal experiences and for their service to our nation. We leave with some heartfelt words from Air Force Captain Jim Nolan, who served in Cameron Bay, Vietnam. Too many of the current generation don't appreciate the freedoms that we, we have. Worse yet, they don't appreciate what it took to achieve these freedoms. That's where the more those people can travel to other countries, other cultures, to where they can appreciate what we have here. Too many of them don't. And you know, they look at soldiers and, and wars and, and fighting. They don't understand that that is the price of freedom. There are too many people in this world that will take our freedom away if we allow it. Thanks for joining us for Veterans Remember Vietnam. This has been a special Veterans Day podcast created by the Broadcast Graduate Journalism Class of 2016 
at American University in Washington, D.C. Executive Producer, Professor Jill Olmsted, American University School of Communication. Editors, James Johnson, Southfield, Michigan. Nogutulawati, Deben, South Africa. Megan Perrier, Virginia Beach, Virginia. Alexis Alfred, Detroit, Michigan. Kadian Jones, Kingston, Jamaica. Nicole Webb, Deer Park, New York. Reporters, Raekwon Taylor, Norfolk, Virginia. Idalis Ortiz, Puerto Rico. Nina Zafar, Boston, Massachusetts. Hawea Fidal, Toronto, Canada. Devin Caney, Radnor, Pennsylvania. Rashonda Dickens, Bowie, Maryland. Noe Kuth, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Amanda Aguilar, Fremont, California. Kadian Jones, Kingston, Jamaica. Ryan Watkins, Baltimore, Maryland. Only Cotton Gunner, Lagos, Nigeria. Raisa Camargo, Queens, New York. Heather Wilson, Ardmore, Oklahoma. Nicole Webb, Deer Park, New York. Newsreel Sound, courtesy of the National Archives. Spring at home, but unmindful of clock or calendar.